0: Welcome to In Conversation, the podcast that fuels your entrepreneur spirit, brought to you by Inhomoko. We deliver thought-provoking conversations with industry leaders, game changers, and unsung heroes, all making an impact in their communities and shaping the future of business. Let's grow together and transform the world, one business at a time. Thank you again, Jocelyn, for agreeing and accepting our invitation. And just to start it off, I would like to invite you to share a little bit about yourself, the journey and experiences that led to co-finding IDEO and later on serving as the CEO of Alight Foundation. And how did your experience as a social entrepreneur and innovator contribute to the work that you now do at Alight?
1: Thanks so much for having me here today. It's great to connect with all of you. Um, I grew up with parents who were both working in education and always knew that I wanted to do something in terms of um, social impact, in terms of my career. I decided to pursue a career in global development um, as it was an opportunity to tackle challenges related to poverty alleviation and so ended up going to business school and studying international business and through that had a couple different fellowship opportunities one to spend time working with a social enterprise called Vision Spring in India um, and another as an Acumen Fellow working with a couple different health social enterprises in Kenya. I then found my way into IDEO, um, which at the time was just starting as as a design innovation firm to explore how these methodologies of design thinking and human-centered design could apply to social impact challenges. I started IDEO to really build the social impact domain And through that sort of recognized that we needed a different kind of model um, in order to pursue the work that we wanted to do with social enterprises and foundations and nonprofits. And so I co-founded IDEO.org as a sister nonprofit to IDEO um, in 2011. One of the organizations that we worked with for many years uh, at IDEO.org was initially called American Refugee Committee and then eventually became Alight. And Alight was such a great partner to us at IDEO.org because of the real focus on putting the customer at the center. In in Alight's case, this was um, the customer being displaced people, both refugees and internally displaced people around the world. And I just really believed in the mission and the values of Alight from all that I had seen through working with idea.org. And so I joined Alight in December of 2021. Um, so it's been a little over a year and a half at this point. And um, it's been a great transition. I think the opportunity to lead and run a, a large organization has been really a fascinating journey. And of course, just the number of complex crises and challenges that have arisen in the last year and a half have kept me and the team very busy being a social entrepreneur for my time at ideo.org has been able to translate into my time at alight where we're sort of taking similar approaches to developing strategy and to using tools of human-centered design and co-creation and insights um, in order to inform the work that we're doing in order to really Evolve and continue to to get better at, at delivering the services that we deliver around the world,
0: absolutely. that is so fascinating and And speaking of um you mentioned the American Refugee Committee, which is now allied, and I guess I just um want to bring on this rebranding um and ask you what motivated the name changing. Omooka has also undergone its own rebrand. We were Previously, the African Entrepreneur Collective, and then rebranded to Inhomoko, um which means origin in Kinyaranda, I w- would like to invite you to um, also share what motivated the name change and what the name Alight represents now. Great question. So when...
1: American Refugee Committee first contacted us at IDO in 2010. They said, we believe we can be a new organization, um, and we believe that we want to be able to express that to the world. But before we figure out what our new brand or name might be, we really want to do they are calling brand in action. I believe we started the rebrand process. IDO.org was actually the partner to um, ARC at the time for the rebranding work. Um, And we started that work in 2018. We first sort of started with understanding how our customers really responded to the brand. Because again, if we are meant to be customer oriented and really focused on the refugees and displaced people as our customers, then what was most important to us was their perception of, of the brand. And so when we spoke with them, so many of our customers would say to us, "Listen, refugee isn 't a, a title that I want to hold it 's actually the darkest time in my life I'm, I want to be defined by so many other things i don 't want to be called a refugee um, in many places. Being called a refugee is shameful um, and and I want to be considered for being a teacher or a father or a daughter or a friend or a leader or whatever it is and so That for us was really telling that the name refugee should probably not be in the name of the organization. Um, There were other places geographically where we worked where having American as the first name in the organization was also not particularly beneficial. Um, Being sort of tagged as an American institution was not always as positive. And also, people sort of had this assumption that American Refugee Committee meant that we helped refugees in America, which was really not the work that we were doing at the time. Um, and then the word committee was just sort of a confusing word for people. So all around, the name just wasn't really working. The designers, you know, went through a human-centered design process and and tested out many different directions and ultimately landed on on the direction of a light and the sort of whole branding that goes around that um, that symbolized for us. A belief in abundance, a belief in people, you know, an optimistic spirit, sort um, of future and forward-looking, um, a brand that really represented the possibilities, as opposed to. A brand that was so focused on crisis or you know negativity or what people no longer had. Instead, we were really focused on you know what people continued to hold and what they are moving towards. And so that was really what illuminated the brand and got us to the name Alay and um, the whole sort of visual direction um, that we have today.
0: Seems that things that influence your work um, put your customers at the center and puts displaced communities at the center of driving conversations and impact my question is um how if you can elaborate more on that and how um co-creation is reflected in a light's work and projects
1: yeah absolutely so one of the things that I started off doing, um, when I took on the role as CEO, was a listening tour. And the listening tour was really an opportunity to visit many of Alight's um, programs around the world to meet our customers, to meet our frontline teams, spend time with our leaders, um, and really get a better sense of the direction that we should go as an organization. And this really led into Alight's new strategy, which is focused on three main areas. The first is on insight, so being, know, having deep insights about the journeys and decisions that people make on um, these paths of displacement. Um, And so we really want to have deep insights about um, displacement and be able to share those more broadly with the field. The second is co-creation, so really using those insights to frame up um, questions that we can ask and ways that we can engage community members, local leadership, other partners, in co-creation activities to be able to design programs and services and products together. And then the third is high quality implementation. So really committing to deliver services at a high quality level and really um, hold ourselves accountable to what our customers deem as high quality in terms of the services that they receive from us. And so co-creation is a really core part of what we do in all of our work. Um, one example recently of a co-creation activity that I actually had the opportunity to, to lead and participate in um, and when I was just in Rwanda. We're working in the Mahama um, refugee camp where we have been working for the last 20 years. And in Mahama, we have been working with a, a number of different young women on various livelihood projects. And one of those livelihood projects is a soap making business. We've trained the women to make soap, both liquid soap and bar soap. We have given them the the products to be able to sort of get started and then they're able to take the income and, and reinvest it into continuing to build the business. But one of the challenges that the women have had is differentiation of their soap. And so I was able to organize a co-creation workshop with the women to really together sort of look at different soaps available in the market in Rwanda and be able to sort of share what they valued in terms of soap and it could be you know smell or packaging or price or functionality or whatever it was. And then for them to bring in customers as well and have the customers also share their perspectives about how they make decisions about buying soap. And then we led a brainstorming session about, given that, what might be different changes that these young women might make to the soaps that they are themselves. Um, producing. And so that just gave them a number of different ideas. And, you know, one of the big ones was they felt like their soap needed to have a name that was unique and that they needed to have a stamp that they could put on the bars of soap so that people would be able to distinguish their soap from other soaps. This type of co-creation activity, though, is small, is so meaningful in terms of being able to sort of unleash the creativity of these young women to allow them to really feel like they have the ability to make decisions or bring ideas about how to form their businesses and for our staff to also see like oh wow we don't need to be the ones that come up with how to solve this problem we can talk to the girls that are participating in these programs and together we can come up with lots of ideas that are better than what any of us would have been able to generate alone that's a that's a pretty micro example of co-creation we are also doing co-creation as we do sort of larger scale programmatic assessments in terms of being able to understand if we should enter a new geography or you know start working in a new sector we are doing co-creation at that scale
0: as well absolutely um i think it's very important to also understand that social impact um is essentially for our customers and should be driven by the customer's, I guess, needs and um, perception to what is needed from governments and public institutions and the private sector to enable a conducive environment for refugees and displaced people to thrive as entrepreneurs and innovators.
1: Yeah, I think in, in all the countries, the regulatory environment is quite different in terms of what refugees are able to do in terms of work freedom of movement and so you know i think the first thing and i think rwanda is um is doing a much better job of this than than a number of countries are where there really is very limited work opportunities very limited freedom of movement Um, but i do think that the opportunities for refugees to be able to work in um, and around host communities and hold jobs in the countries where they are is really important I think the opportunity for them to be able to legally start businesses in the countries where they are is really important and i think of course the freedom of movement to be able to leave the places where they're living and be able to access markets um, surrounding markets is really critically important the next level is really around uh, access to capital um, and and being able to provide people with that opportunity to take a loan or get a grant to be able to, you know, buy the sewing machine or the bicycle or the um, motorbike or um, the soap making materials or whatever it is in order to be able to get that initial business. For instance, we've worked with a group of women also in Mahama to start a small mushroom farm. There was interest of course, but they didn't know how to farm mushrooms um, because they had never had exposure to that before. And so, you know, we are able to both figure out a way to procure those products to get that started, um, provide that initial training for them to be able to learn how to do mushroom farming, provide that initial capital, and then they're sort of off and and able to run and grow that business um, themselves. But I do think that those components, the sort of legal environment is really important, the access to capital and the ability to get that kind of technical assistance to be able to know how to do this new job or to start this business are all really important. And I think some some are things that governments can do. I think some are things that the global development community can support. Some are things that philanthropy can contribute to or impact investors or others. But I think it's sort of coming together, you're able to, to provide that ecosystem that can work for people to be able to start and grow those businesses.
0: Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned something that that we actually work on um, at Tingomoka is one of our interventions, access to capital, um, because we understand that it's very important for refugee-led entrepreneurship and allows them to thrive and grow businesses. Which leads me to the next question. This question is focused on the type of perception that organizations working in the refugee space deal with when advocating for communities, when supporting these communities to thrive. And this is a perception of investing in displaced communities. Some of the conversations that we've had at Tinghomoko is that we understand that investing in And working with displaced communities is not a favor, but it's good business. And our job is to essentially not only work with partners, but advocate for that and show that it is good business. Because for years, it has been considered a volatile investment because of the nature of displacement. I guess my question is, as an experienced leader yourself, in not just the social impact space, but with your experience working with displaced communities, can you speak on how you envision the future of refugee entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, I mean, first, I would say just sort of going back to some of the insights work that I talked about that LA has done. Um, we've had conversations over the years with you know, hundreds or thousands of refugees and displaced people and and ask them all the time, you know, what is it that you want and need most of all? And I'd say the number one answer that comes back to us is I want an opportunity to make money and be able to provide for my family. I hear from donors or others like, oh, we really need to encourage this self-sufficiency or we need to get people off this dependency as if refugees or displaced people themselves are saying oh what i really want is handouts from the government and that is like absolutely not the case right if people are unable to work or if they're not allowed to work then Sure, like we need to be able to provide, you know, in an emergency context, certainly we need to be able to provide, you know, food to people or cash transfers or whatever it is. And and we may need to do that as we help people transition to being self-sufficient. But I think we just hear all the time, like people want to work, right? And they want jobs, whether those are, you know, paid jobs as employees or whether those are entrepreneurial opportunities, refugees and displaced people want to work more than anything else. You know, I mentioned this mushroom farm, and you know even over the course of like a month after this mushroom farm had taken off, the women were selling out every single day, right They were making tons of money together, they were like eager to grow it, they were trying to figure out you know how they could get into into the capital and and be able to like sell these mushrooms to broader markets and so many great entrepreneurs out there, I think, given the resources you can they can really be unleashed. Of course, that's what we all want to see, right? We want to see the sort of graduation or transition from people being dependent on emergency food or on cash transfers to being in a position where they are able to provide for their families. And so I think all of our interests are really aligned in helping to find and support these entrepreneurial endeavors so that people can provide for their families and really pursue the lives that they envision for themselves.
0: Absolutely. I think it brings us to um, our last question. This question is more of cultivating teams, leadership and partnerships that not only are committed to supporting displaced communities, but are also a reflection of the communities that we serve. I know at Tinghamoku we pride ourselves on having a majority of our staff having experience with displacement so we can better serve the communities because we're in proximity to them and their experiences. My question is, how does that also um, come about at the light Yeah,
1: it's a great question. And it's been a real value that we have held as well, which is having people at Alight who have lived experience with displacement themselves has really been importantly critical, but not just at sort of a level of frontline staff and service delivery people, but really in leadership roles of the organization as well. And so for us, it's been really important to ensure that we are identifying people um, that we are supporting them on their career paths and leadership journeys um, that when we are hiring in externally that we're looking at that as a as one filter, it has been really important for us that for many years now. Our, what we call our um, executive directors, who are the the people that run our country programs or regional programs, are from the the places where we're working um, or themselves have lived experience with displacement. And that is generally true of our executive directors today, also really working to and sort of measuring ourselves and, and looking at, you know, the the number of women in leadership roles has been an important piece for us, but also certainly people with lived experience um, with displacement and leadership roles has been really important for us. So we're um, very aligned with you all in terms of that commitment and and belief that it makes such a difference to be able to have people leading the organization and working for the organization that have that lived experience themselves, because it's just different than, than for those of us who haven't.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We hope to partner with the light soon. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for these great questions. At Inhomoko, we're dedicated to empowering entrepreneurs across Africa with the tools, resources, and knowledge they need to flourish in today's competitive business landscape. Now we're bringing that passion to this podcast, taking you on a journey through inspiring stories from around the globe.